Hello, I'm Tom Ballard, and this is What's the Story, a new podcast from Audible, the home of audiobooks and Audible original podcasts. Each month, we'll discuss Audible's Editor's Extra, a bonus bestseller that members are loving. We'll hear everything from crime thrillers to personal development series to Australian stories, and we'll discuss them here on the podcast with authors and storytellers from Australia and around the world. So, let's get stuck in. For our first show this past month, we have been listening to... The Dry by Jane Harper. It's the worst drought to have ravaged Australia in a century. When a farmer turns his gun on his family and then himself, the questions mount and suspicion casts a long shadow over the town of Kiwara. Luke lied. You lied. Be at the funeral. Specialist investigator Aaron Fork returns home and is forced to confront the community that rejected him 20 years ago. We've got nothing to do with them that lived here, nothing to do with those freaks. The Dry is a story of desperation. Luke, mate, can you hear me? Resolution. There was no one there. There was no one left in that place. And small town prejudice played out against the blistering extremes of life on the land. They said the drought might break this winter. For everyone's sake... He wanted them to be right this time. Oh, there you go. That's the sizzle of the dry. And a very cool uh, voiceover guy who's very sexy. Well done. Now, trust me, you don't want this mystery spoiled. So if you haven't listened to the dry yet, please stop listening to this podcast. There are spoilers ahead. Jump onto Audible, enjoy the dry, and then come on back to hear our discussion. I have two wonderful guests joining me on What's the Story this month to chat about the dry. First up is satirist, writer, director and prime suspect, Dan Illich. <laughs> yes, by the end of this podcast, someone will die. <laughs> so it could be you, Tom oh, Ballard. Oh, gosh. Okay, terrifying. Hello, Dan. Welcome to the show. It's good to be here. And broadcaster and expert when it comes to all things true crime, the co-host of Australian true crime podcast, the lovely Michelle Laurie. Hi, Michelle. Hi. Am I lovely, though, or am I a stone-cold killer? Oh, gosh. I'm lovely. I'm actually lovely. No, I'm actually lovely. Yeah. We've worked together. You're lovely. lovely. Okay, right. Good to check. Welcome to you both. Thanks Thanks for being here. Now, I want to start off by asking about the experience of actually listening to The Dry as opposed to sitting down and reading a book. That's what we're all about here on What's the Story. Dan, what were you doing while you were taking in The Dry? I was doing all sorts of things. I was driving. I was was pedalling my bike. I was cleaning the dishes. I was in the shower. Because it's a long book. You like. listen to the shower? Oh, yeah, of course I listen in the shower. It's a great place to listen because you're not doing anything else. So you can actually actively listen. And that is the difference between listening to a podcast or the radio or music or something else. You really have to pay attention uh, when you're listening to an audio book because you don't want to miss anything. Yeah. I often found myself hitting the back button a few times when right. I'd be like, my mind would drift off for a second while I was doing something. And I'd be like, oh, geez, I better go back for about three minutes just so I can catch up with all, what I actually missed in that time. Particularly for a crime thriller, you don't want to miss the detail. You want to right? miss any of the detail. And the detail in this book is so exquisite that everything in it is could actually be crucial to the story. Michelle, how about you? I listen to a lot of audio books uh, and Usually on public transport because the traffic in Melbourne is so bad and I love this one. I love the narrator, actually. He <laughs> he just does enough acting. You know, some of them are just over-actors. I've been known to switch off an audio book because I'm like, your acting is actually killing me. <laughs> um, but this guy, just enough... Just enough differentiation between characters, just enough to let me know this is a lady talking, I get it. This is an old man, this is a young man, this guy's upset, this guy's cool. Uh, yeah, I, so I'm sitting on the train and I'm looking out the window and I'm just taking it all in. I love it. 
The narrator is a guy by the name of Steve Shanahan. He's a friend of Jane Harper's. He's uh, read her other book as well, Force of Nature. So Australian, I think, like beautifully evoking Australian outback in his Mm. voice and his character work. I know you're a fan, Dan. Look, I am a fan, particularly when it first started. I I felt like, um, uh, quite frankly, it was too sexy. Uh, (laughs) And I'm, you know, I'm a cisgendered heterosexual male and all of a sudden I had this guy whispering to my ears and I was like, oh my God, this is really, yes, sir, whatever, what are you, are you going to be buying me a drink by chapter three. I'm really excited about this. I've got an example here of Mr. Shanahan at his sexiest. Let's take a listen to this. Fork's car was awash with shit. Streaks and smears covered the paintwork, pooling around the wheels and under the windscreen wipers. You're real sicko, Dan yeah. Illich. All right, let's get into it. The big question, I reckon, for any murder mystery or a crime fiction like this, of course, is did you see it coming? Did you figure out who the killer was before we got to the revelatory chapters? Michelle? I really did not. And I loved the way at various times, to me, a classic whodunit is one in which at various moments you think, oh, my God, it's this person, and it never is. (laughs) And so at various times I thought it was every single character in the book, even that girl who died in, like, the first chapter. Um, I thought it was her at one stage. I thought, oh, God, she didn't die. She's actually been alive the whole time and hiding under their steps. Yeah. Um, So, yeah, I did think it was every single person except the person it actually was uh, until the end. But I am notoriously very, very bad at crime investigation, actually. Ask anyone who's ever done my (laughs) podcast because any retired detective I've ever spoken to will say to me, Oi, can you just calm your farm and wait until I get to the bit where I tell you who it is? Because you're really bad at this. So, no, I had no idea. Absolutely. Yeah, I thought it was Everyone. At one point, I thought it was the Australia Post guy knocking on the door. I was like, yeah, he's definitely done at it. What, so, but that moment when you found out was Scott Whitlam, the principal for his own uh, motivations, his fear about being discovered as a gambling addict who had laundered money from the primary mm. school. That was a shock to you, Dan? I, I was devastated. I was like, oh, no, not him. Oh, I really enjoyed him, really enjoyed mm. his character. I no. was really rooting for that character. Michelle, were you satisfied finding out that Scott Whitlam was the killer? Yeah, you never trust a city guy in the country. Everyone knows the new guy in town is always the bad guy. You know, you know the the you're not from around here, are uh, you? Yeah. Always rings true. We know that, and Jane knows that. He's always to blame for whatever's going wrong in the town, and uh, you know, and that rings true. Um- one of the interesting things about the, the way the story is constructed that I really loved was the time jumping, jumping between present and then the time when Ellie was alive. And I, I, it didn't need much for me. There was a very simple pause when that time jumping occurred and immediately I knew what time we were in. And it was something where, as someone who produces audio stuff all the time and, or, or video stuff all the time, I'm sure there would have been a lot of hand-wringing about how do, we, how do we symbolise this in an audio format. But I just thought leaving a couple of beats and then jumping back straight away and letting the audience catch up was a really good technique and I didn't think it needed too much at all. Yeah, that's interesting. In the text, like in the actual um, printed book of uh, The Dry by Jane Harper, all that flashback text is in italics, right? Oh, so right, it's very right. clearly delineated from oh. the rest of the text, so you know. Whereas in the audio version, there are a few moments where it actually took you a couple of sentences to realise, oh, we have mm. jumped back in time here and I'm in a different world. So it's sometimes like, Ellie Deacon walked down the street. You go, hang on, I thought she was dead. Mm. Okay, no, good good work, Tom. Yeah, but I didn't mind that at all. Like, no, it was great. I, I thought it was great. Like, no. it, it required work on our 
other half to kind of go, oh, here's where, here, where, here's where we are now. Yeah. And I thought that was great. Mm. I really valued, I felt, like, I felt like I was valued as a listener. What do we reckon of that big dramatic standoff at the end? Scott Woodlam's on the run. We know he's the killer. Fork and Rako eventually track him mm. down in the dry bush, but Whitlam's got one last trick up his sleeve. In one movement... Whitlam reached down and whipped a small flask out of his pocket. He flipped off the cap and took a sip. His eyes never leaving theirs, he tilted the flask and poured a trickle of the amber liquid on the ground around him. The whiskey vapours hit fork a moment later. Call it an insurance policy, Whitlam shouted. The spark fluttered as his outstretched arm shook. Scott, Rayco yelled. You stupid bastard, you'll have us all with that, you included. Then shoot me if you're going to. But I'll drop it. Ooh, tense stuff. Michelle, you enjoyed that. I thought that was so ingenious. The idea that this environment that she's been setting up for the entire book and how easily and how quickly it would burn and kill so many people without having to say all of that, you know? I thought that was like, oh, go, girl. Dad, it didn't work for you, though. Look... I used to be a scout, and I used to blow up a lot of stuff yeah. in the bush. Stop bragging, all right, Dan? Like, we get it. You're very cool. I used to okay. blow up stuff all the time, and I just didn't buy this because because yeah, I've set fire to liquids in the bush. It doesn't. It's not going to set a whole community on fire. This little this little canister of bourbon. It's not going to work. It's what just, are you talking about? Yeah. The, the massive fires are started by tiny little campfires all the time. But you got two people on the case who's who's right in front of this guy. You got three hundred people marching through the bush looking through this guy. As soon as that happens, you just get those 300 people to come and put the fire out. It's not that hard. You can put it out with your coat. It's, I, I just I didn't believe it <laughs> oh, at all. I God. didn't believe it. The only thing that you would You don't get it. The only, thing, oh. the only thing I reckon that you would have set it up. You don't get the dry, man. <laughs> the dry, man. Oh. Look, the dry I get, right? Oh. But the only what I was missing from this scenario was wind. What I wanted to see was what I wanted to feel was wind. If there was wind there, I reckon I would have been emotionally on board. But you can appreciate ending. the beautiful metaphor, as Michelle. Oh, I mentioned. love a metaphor. Great <laughs> top, top class metaphor. I love the dry. Well done. I, I think it would have been stronger if Reiko had died. I must say, I felt like we needed more stakes there. And if Reiko had tragically died oh, in that moment, I think that God. would have like, yeah, absolutely yeah. been a sucker. But so how do we feel harsh. about the resolution at the very end of the novel with the Ellie Deacon mystery? Right, it's, it served as, as this amazing red herring throughout the entire novel, do we think Mal Deacon and Grant Dow would have got their comeuppance at the end of the novel, Michelle? Oh, it's so sad, that bit. Do you know what? I've almost sort of wiped that from my memory. Mm. I thought it was cool that Gretchen knew all along that the boys weren't together. That was really cool. Luke lied. You, you lied. lied. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. That, that, that line from the beginning so much. Be at the funeral. Yeah, that was super cool. Um Oh, the Ellie storyline's really sad. It's necessary and it's a really great device, but it makes me really sad. <laughs> I was just going to say not only that it brings kind of a beautiful conclusion to Ellie's story, but I think it brings closure for Aaron Falk as well. I think after 20 years of being blamed for this murder, he gets to walk away with two clean mysteries solved for himself, and that that's a beautiful resolution for Aaron. And he can walk away and never go back to that town and be happy. But Grand Dow's still there, and I guess it's Mel Deacon's me? punishment, just the fact that he's living this, this well, sort of senile life, racked by guilt and haunted by the past. I think that's it. I mean, like he's still going to yeah. be, he's still going to be, he's still not going to believe 
believe he's still not going to believe the the the, the news story, and he can't con- he can't be convinced of the news story because he is senile. Mm. So he's got to and live with that. And what about how the rest of the town goes? Oh, you know, and and everyone in the town just sort of reckoned. Oh well, if he knocked her, he knocked her. It was twenty years ago. You know, we're just going to sort of get on with it now because he's done something good since then. All right, we're going to hear more from Dan and Michelle in a second, but now let's hear direct from the author herself. I was lucky enough to grab some time with Jane Harper to chat about whether she's listened to The Dry, her central detective character Aaron Fork, and that sombre ending. Jane Harper, welcome to What's the Story? Thank you. Good to be here. Thank you so much for joining us. Congratulations on The Dry. I know it's a couple of years on now, but of course it was a massive success. Your debut novel sold over a million copies. You've written a sequel. It's being turned into a film with Eric Banner playing the lead role. The question is, have you listened to the audiobook? Yeah, absolutely. I have. Yeah, I, I love um, listening to the audiobook. I think it gives me a whole different perspective on it. Like it's a very sort of fresh experience. I'm so used to looking at the words on the page that be able to kind of listen to it. Um, it, it. It really does kind of, it's kind of like almost like a new book somehow. Really? That's interesting. So so you would have had these characters living in your head and would have thought a lot about every single word uh, throughout the drive, of course, your first novel. What did you discover listening back to it? Yeah, it was interesting. I think, um, you know, I realised that when I write the books, um, all the characters sound like me in my head, <laughs> whereas, um, you know, it was pretty um, great to hear um, Steve Shanahan, who's the narrator for all three of my books, um, hear and, uh, you know, him uh, actually give the, you know, the Australian men this sort of, you know, beautiful Australian. Australian male voice and um, so yeah I think also the the, the slight difference in um, I guess his interpretation of some of the lines and the dialogue um, you know in my head I hear them a certain way and then you hear someone else's interpretation and often it's you know it's just as good it's just a, sort of a, a slightly sort of fresher different take on it and um, yeah it's quite interesting the way it sort of brings it to life I think. Let's talk about the place, the town of Kawara. It doesn't exist. It's not a real town, but I feel like I've been there and visited it myself. How did you go about painting such a vivid picture of a small country Australian town? Yeah, you know, I'm glad you said that you feel like it's somewhere you may have visited because that was exactly what I wanted to capture. You know, it is it is fictional and like, and it's not, um, you know, a town that really you know, it does exist in itself. But at the same time, I wanted it to be somewhere that was definitely recognisable. And a lot of it came down to trying to cherry pick those details that really make a place unique. So we're talking, you know, in this case, like the heat and the dust and the, the kind of the downtrodden nature of this community and what it's become because of the you know, the weather patterns that have no control over um, and the kind of the, the, the sort of reluctant, tight-knit feel of this community that's forced to sort of rely on each other. What, what do you think makes for a great detective character in a book like The Dry and, and what went into creating Aaron Fork? Yeah, I mean, I really enjoy writing about Fork and there's a, a few things that sort of went into creating his character. You know, I wanted him to be someone that the audience and the readers could really get behind, you know, um, that they felt they trusted and they felt that they could follow through eight hours of audio or whatever it, it takes you to, you know, to get through the, the whole novel. Um, I, I wanted him also in, in this particular case in The Dry to be someone who had a sort of historic connection with the community, but one that had faded over time. So he's not a homicide detective. He's not, you know, familiar with um, gory, traumatic situations. He's very much just a man who gets on with his job and does it well, but at the same time is drawn to these events because of his personal connection with them. 
there's some pretty uh, visceral and uh, grisly depictions of violence in in the book, of domestic violence, of um, murder, obviously. I'm just interested in your thoughts of some of the critiques of crime fiction and true crime. How do you think about and wrestle the kind of ethical questions that can come up when you're working and writing in this genre? Yeah, and I think it's you know it's an important point really to to consider when you're writing. I mean, I'm sort of very much of the view that you know it, it cannot be voyeuristic, you know, and it it cannot be unnecessary, um, and just not over the top as well. I think you know for me the the crime at the centre of you know any of the books is never the most interesting thing for me. It's always just a catalyst for what happens next and and the the ripple effects and the impact it has on the community and the characters and how that changes them and changes their relationships. So that's always been what I'm more interested in. Well, you don't need any help, Jane, but allow me to pitch for you to your next book project. Two of the biggest genres in the Australian market are crime fiction and personal development. Now, I think you could write the first hybrid of those two genres, yeah? It's like a whodunit, but the victim is someone's own self-esteem and it turns out the killer is your lack of belief. What do you reckon? Oh, I love it. I think I think that's a that's a winning idea. You should um you should save that one for yourself, I think. <laughs> Very diplomatic of you, thank you. Jane Harper, we love listening to the dry and we love chatting to you today on What's the Story. Thanks so much for your time. Oh, thank you very much. All right, let's talk a little bit more about how Jane Harper brings the world of the dry to life. I think she's very good at the little details. Uh, We get that right from the opening two sentences of the prologue. It wasn't as though the farm hadn't seen death before and the blowflies didn't discriminate. To them, there was little difference between a carcass and a corpse. There you go. Uh, That's an opening for you. (laughs) And it's there throughout the dry, like in this short scene uh, from when Fork and Rako bring the Hadler's possessions back to the police station. It was a rare day when a city force sent its best officer on a country secondment, especially to a place like Kiwara. Barnes was unlikely to be the sharpest knife in the drawer. Rako may have been too tactful to say it, but the message was clear. In this station, he was pretty much on his own. They put the box of Karen's and Billy's belongings on a spare desk and opened it. The fluorescent lights hummed overhead. At the window, a fly bashed itself repeatedly against the glass. What stood out to you in that passage, Dan? Uh, It's really interesting, like, listening to that now, I can hear all those sound effects in the onomatopoeia and I don't actually, there's no sound design with it. And I think that's so amazing. Throughout the entire book, you had these amazing elements where just the descriptions alone really brought you brought all your senses into the scene. And Stephen's reading of it um, just makes it so visceral. And I really enjoyed that. As someone who listens to podcasts and narrative podcasts and things like that, there's always a lot of sound design based around these things. Yeah. Uh, but something about the raw words just managed to put put you in that place. You can feel like that fly is bashing against a window <laughs> in can, the room that and you're And you can hear the buzzing. Yeah. You can hear you can it's not even mentioned there, but you can hear the box on the desk sliding sliding across the desk. You can hear the box being opened. None of that is mentioned. Yeah. But you can actually feel like you're in that place. Okay, Michelle, I want to dig into your true crime knowledge here. Uh, we know you you love all things true crime. You host that wonderful podcast which is crazy popular. Uh, of course, we shouldn't forget that the horrible murders that are depicted in the dry do actually happen in, in real, real life, tragically. Have you ever come across a real-life case that has some similarities or, or, or shares some parallels with the murders of the Hadlers? Well, obviously, it's very uncommon for this... To, it, it's unfortunately quite common for murder-suicides to happen, but it's very uncommon for someone to create 
a situation that looks like a murder-suicide and isn't. But I did some research for you and I found one in America uh, from 2018, a West Virginia woman set up a situation that looked like her stepmother and uh, had murdered her sister and then killed herself, but it was actually not that way. She had killed them both. This is the the, the guts of the book, right? The premise originally is that this, sadly, mm. this murder-suicide is relatively familiar to us, so it looks like it's an open and shut case. Yes. And the uh, odd thing is that there are some details that might suggest it goes the other way. Mm. Do we have an understanding about those kind of cases or, or the kind of effects that they do have on the families and communities in these regional areas that are being um, hurt so badly by uh, environmental conditions that leads to people being so desperate as to take a gun to themselves and their loved ones? Oh, well, we know that there's a lot of research about it, obviously, and there are a lot of books written about it. And we know that situations like this where men's livelihoods are challenged, men's um, masculinity is challenged and their place in society feels as though it has been diminished to the point where their identity has been taken away from them. Those are the criteria, those are the situations in which these kinds of murders can happen. All right, let's talk about the investigation, right? Aaron Fork is our mm. central detective. He mainly deals in financial crimes, although we get the insight that that can involve some pretty grisly stuff as well. Yeah. He rocks up with his personal connection to the murder, obviously a good friend of Luke Hadler, and then sort of in an unofficial capacity that seems to go for quite a while, I must say. <laughs> he, he gets quite a bit of uh, leeway unofficially investigating this murder. Teams up with the Sergeant yeah, like, where's Raker. where's the homicide squad? <laughs> <laughs> I love this. Well, they well, just never come. <laughs> we'll get to the it's far way, away. The ways that real life might have played out differently in a sec. But, but from your reading and your experience, mm. what does the dry get right about how an investigation into a murder like this would, would play out? Well, nothing. Um, <laughs> like, you know, like, the, where's the, I mean, the homicide squad never comes. So, you know, honestly, nothing. We sort of get a uh, look inside the mind of um, a detective of, of whatever kind, someone who's trying to put together the case and, and gather the evidence. Here's just a taste of uh, Fork and Rako while they're on the case. Karen's body was found right here in the hallway, Rako said. The door was open so the courier saw her straight away. Was she running for the door? Fogg tried to imagine Luke chasing his own wife through their own house. No, that's just it. She was answering it. Shot by whoever was standing on the doorstep, you can tell from the position of the body. But tell me this. When you come home at night, does your wife answer the door to you? Mm. Mm. So there's something there, Michelle, like, you know, a couple of coppers trying to put it together, trying to make sure everything matches and letting the evidence guide them in their investigation, yeah? Yeah, I definitely think Rayco, I think he should be promoted to homicide. I would definitely be putting in a good word for Rayco. I think that's an excellent observation that generally women don't answer the door to their husbands. So, yeah, I thought that was really cool that he noticed that. And I like the way that that the police didn't ever discuss uh, an hypothesis about what had happened until they kind of knew. They just followed their noses. They followed the clues. They just kept working the clues. And that's what police always say. They're like, just follow the investigation. Don't try and figure it out until you get there, until you get to the end. That was cool. Or go into something with a preconceived idea, right? I mean, everyone looks, most people, locals and particularly cops who are dealing with um, violence and crime on a regular basis will look at something and say, this looks like something 
something I've seen before, therefore it's probably this, whereas the best detectives are the one who yeah. aren't presuming anything and making sure the evidence fits everything that, that, um, that, that, that we think about a certain case. I really love Rako's now, so I thought he had a really good nose for investigating yeah. stuff. There was one line, I think, in, uh, in one of the early chapters, in that scene, actually, that you just played, where he's talking about... Uh, watching his brothers and their kids play hide and seek and knowing and his brothers knowing where all of their kids hiding places are and he's like why why would why yes. would Luke even toss the toss the whole room of, of Billy's room apart when he would know exactly where Billy would be hiding the entire time. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. And there's something so sinister about that moment, isn't that's it? Because brilliant. you're thinking, well, obviously it would be awful if this father come, came into his child, his son's room and shot his young son. That's awful. awful. But there's almost something more horrific about someone coming in who doesn't have that relationship to this, this boy trying to hunt him down and kill him. It was gruesome, yeah. yeah. And then again, later in the in the novel, where we see that whole murder scene from Scott Whitlam's point of view, that moment when he realizes the kid is there, this young boy Billy, and he has to go and do this you unspeakable know, this, this task, unspeakable task yeah. just to cover his own ass. Mm. And see, again, because I'm such a bad investigator, I thought <laughs> that the reason that the baby was still alive was because it must have been someone from Luke's past who didn't know, who hadn't seen Luke since they had the baby. So I thought, oh, it's probably someone who who has been out of touch with Luke, you know, since that period of time. I was thinking, oh, it's someone who hasn't seen them in that two years or something, Mm. didn't know they had another kid, you know what I mean? But it wasn't, so let's get on with the show. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Dan Illich and Michelle Laurie, we weren't the only ones to listen to The Dry. Some other people in the world have done so. They want to communicate their thoughts about that experience to other people in the world. I thought it'd be fun to check some of that feedback that's out there. Some of the feedback is really fun and insightful and great. Some of it's a bit weird. So fun for the whole family. Uh, Dan, you've got some feedback from Wacker. Yes, here is a comment from Wacker. Good story. A bit depressing at times. Main character, not that likeable. Next volume will be interesting to see if the standard will be maintained. Thank you, Wacker. Maintaining standard of unlikable characters. (laughs) Come on, Wacker. (laughs) Grow up, grow up. It's a murder mystery, Wacker. It doesn't need more jokes. Just chill out, Wacker. This is interesting, right? Aaron Falk is going to be played by Eric Banner in the movie. Yep. And we we know there's another another novel with uh, Aaron Falk at the centre of it. Is he a bit of an arsehole? He's not very good at expressing his emotions. I think he's a little bit unlikable. He's probably triggered, yeah. Yeah, I liked him. I thought he was nice. He's a guy with a troubled past. The the trouble is Wacker's clearly a man because chicks dig that hard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, there was a great... We found him real likeable. There's a great description in in the audiobook where they go back and they talk about his empty St Kilda flat and no one's waiting for him. He's such a loner, I know. Aaron Fogg. It was very yeah. – I was, I was kind of uh, – I was drawn to that passage. Just yeah, these. you know what we heard? We heard, ooh, sexy man. <laughs> Single. Uh, not married, owns property in St Kilda. Hello. Huge. Just Ooh-wee. needs a cuddle. Uh, Michelle, you have some thoughts from mm. Ernest. Ernest, four stars. It's actually quite an earnest review. Four stars. In so many ways, this writing is different from what we have come to expect in this genre. Yep, I'm bilingual. Many basic structural elements seem familiar, but different things are described or focused on in refreshing ways. Although the setting is significantly Australian, the humans recognisably Australian, the universality of the many tragedies are still etched so movingly that anyone can grieve. I hope the film doesn't become reductive and resort to kangaroos and wombats becoming the lead actors. Uh, yes. Good on you. Good point, Ernest. Can it, I, can it not become Australia, you know, where we've suddenly got people, there's weird sort of, you know, watercolour backgrounds and people just looking at 
creek beds for no good reason. <laughs> I'm glad you know? the film was picked up by Reese Witherspoon's production company and I was worried it was going to be adapted oh. to American. I'm like, no, you have to shoot this in um, yeah. in uh, you know regional Australia and that is what they have done, which yeah. is very good news. Oh, terrific. Yeah, I have some final words here from an anonymous source. Uh, someone wrote this in regards to Jane Harper's The Dry Audiobook. My audio copy is in German. I can only listen in English. What a waste of money. <laughs> so, uh, you know what? Anonymous wouldn't be a waste of money. It would be learning German. That would, that's not a waste of money. You should do that, Anonymous. <laughs> I've been trying to learn German for years. It's, I mean, and people say it's the easiest one to learn from English, but all I can still say is, haben Sie etwas warmes für Frühstück bitte? Which just means, do you serve warm breakfast? <laughs> it's still the only thing I can say. That's dry. So, yeah. Well, if you would like yeah. to let us know what you made of The Dry by Jane Harper, all you have to do is head to the What's the Story Facebook group. You can tell us what you think of the pics we're talking about. You can ask us questions and find some behind-the-scenes goodies. Do it. Dan Illich, Michelle Laurie, thank you so much for joining me for the first instalment of What's the Story? It's been great fun. Great to be with you. Dankeschön. (laughs) (laughs) And thanks to you for listening. Join me on the next episode in a couple of weeks' time when I'll reveal to you the next Editor's Extra from Audible. That's the one we'll be discussing on the show. In the meantime, join the What's the Story group on Facebook and let us know what you think of The Dry. And just a reminder of how it all works. If you're an Audible member, each month you'll get one credit to use on any audiobook of your choice. You'll also get the selected Editor's Extra, a bonus bestseller that members are loving. If you're a newbie, head to audible.com.au slash story to get involved and start listening. One thing I promise you won't be hearing any more of is my interpretation of the character McMurdo from The Dry, which I was daring enough to demonstrate for Jane Harper during our interview. In here a minute, mate, if you don't mind. <laughs> Fox eye, hand on the banister. He looked longingly up the stairs. Drink! <laughs> I thought you were closed. Fork pulled up a stool and sat down. I am. This one's on the hoose. <laughs> the barman set a beer in front of Fork, then poured one for himself. Call it a thank ye. For what? I've seen Grant Dow have a go at a lot of people, and more often than not, it ends with me cleaning up someone's blood. Because that's not the case tonight, I can kick back and have a cold one with you. He held out a hand. David McMurdo. Your thoughts? (laughs) I think your Scottish accent is better than mine, I have to say. Um, That's very kind of you. Thank you. (laughs) That was beautiful. Well done. Nailed it. Until next time, I'll be listening. It's our catchphrase. Hey, if you're loving The Dry but you're not sure what to listen to next, allow me to recommend some other great crime thrillers that are available now on Audible. Aaron Fork is back in Force of Nature, the sequel to Jane Harper's The Dry. When five women reluctantly leave the city for a corporate retreat, only four come out the other side. In an investigation that takes Fork from corporate heartland to isolated bush, he discovers that every person on that retreat has something to hide. Or you could try The Ruin. Follow Detective Cormac Riley as he's thrown into a cold case that has haunted him his entire career. As he navigates his way through police, politics and the ghosts of the past, Detective Riley uncovers shocking secrets and finds himself questioning who among his colleagues he can trust. Download and listen to Force of Nature and The Ruin now from audible.com.au. I'm going to do it myself even. <laughs> <laughs>